hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Doing so much of the podcast editing myself, I hear myself over and over. And something that I appear to love doing is diving into things even though I myself cannot dive and I'm a very bad swimmer. So Cece, let us dive into today's first query letter. Let's do this. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I completed my debut novel earlier this year. And while waiting for feedback from beta readers, I took the opportunity to geek out on all things writing. I happily stumbled across Bianca's podcast and was excited to hear about books with hooks. I would love to hear your feedback on Novel X, which is a work of women's fiction and is complete at 95,000 words. As a counseling psychologist, my fiction is focused on psychological issues and mental health concerns and the emotional impact these have on individuals and their families, which is similar to the way Lisa Genova writes about neurological conditions in Still Alice 
and inside the O'Briens. Novel X also contains some of the mothering angst that is seen in Little Earthquakes by Jennifer Weiner, and it has elements of the HBO series In Treatment, as the reader is able to listen in on the main character's therapy sessions as she works through her issues. Jessica and Glenn Cook are ready to start the next chapter of their life together as they are yearning to start a family. Jessica chose a career where she works with children every day, and they bought a house in a family-friendly neighborhood where the backyard is begging for a swing set. They are devastated when they go through a series of miscarriages and realize they may never be able to have a child of their own. Glenn wants to move on to adoption, but Jessica, who is mired in her grief and depression, is filled with reservations. Jessica faces even more apprehension when she hears that the current view of open adoption involves an ongoing relationship with the birth mother after placement. After so much loss already, this feels too threatening, and she worries that they will never be able to compete against genetics. But the pull to have a child is strong, and she finds herself exploring the possibilities. What follows is a tumultuous journey into the world of open adoption, where she is pushed in ways she never anticipated. And with so many layers of loss, she isn't sure she can ever find her way out. I received my doctorate in counseling psychology in 2001 and have worked in private practice for the last 12 years. I am also a mother to two young children and one labradoodle. While I love to write creatively, my published work is more academic in nature, with the thesis and dissertation in my graduate studies and papers and book reviews for academic journals. I have also contributed editorial pieces to local magazines on such topics as sibling conflict, adolescent depression, and postpartum adjustment. I will soon be starting to work on my second novel while sending out queries for Novel X. Thank you for your time in reading my submission. I hope you enjoy the first pages of Novel X. Sincerely, Author X. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Right, Carly, what did you think of that query letter? All right. So I think in the first section here, we have probably a little bit too much. So we have with nice, beautiful introduction, which was great. Um, we have all the facts, the title, women's fiction, the length. I, I did like this setup as explaining that she's a counseling psychologist. But then I think we end up focusing a lot on the psychology in a way that I just don't think is necessary for a fiction pitch. So yeah, I, I would probably figure out a way to get rid of um, the emotional impact these have on individuals and their families, which is similar to the way Lisa Genova writes about the neurological conditions. Like, I think if you just use these comps, like the comp should be enough. If you say, you know, Lisa Genova, Jennifer Weiner, and, you know, the HBO series and treatment, like I think between all those comps, like that's kind of the point of comps is kind of to do that work so you don't have to explain it so much. And then I'm a little bit concerned with this line as the reader is able to listen in on the main character's therapy sessions as she works through her issues. That's a little bit concerning to me. I'm a little bit concerned that that will A, lag the pace, that B, it might not be as interesting as it potentially could be if it was told in another way. C, is it actually needed and necessary for an actual plot of a book? So, you know, I have, that's kind of like a yellow flag situation for me. And then we get into our next paragraph. And this tends to kind of be a little bit of one of my pet peeves, which is, and I know a lot of women's fiction novels have to kind of be pitched this way because that's kind of how the, the genre category itself works. But this falls into the trap of, 
our life is perfect until it's not kind of opening. And that is one of those query openers where I'm like, if we could just find another way to do those, I would, I think it would just be so much stronger. So I would say instead of starting with they're ready to start the next chapter of their life together as they're yearning to start a family, I would just start with Jessica and Glenn Cook are devastated when they go through the series of miscarriages, like start with their names, but just cut that beginning and get to the devastation because nobody really wants to read about a perfect life, right? Like they want to read about where the trauma and the conflict is. And I think with women's fiction, there's this urge to kind of like set up this, like everything's fine, right? Until an affair, a death, a birth, uh, something, right? In terms of like, what are these big life events? So because this is such a common story, I really want to know what's unique about this story. Unfortunately, uh, infertility is a common, you know, theme in a lot of women's lives, right? And so this tends to actually, unfortunately, be a bit of a common story. So I'm trying to figure out what's unique about this story. And so I'm, again, trying to kind of comb through this query, figuring out where is the hook. And I think the hook is here where it says Jessica faces even more apprehension when she hears that the current view of open adoption involves an ongoing relationship with the birth mother after placement. I think that's the hook because there's so many, again, so many adoption stories, so many infertility stories, whether it's memoir or fiction. I think what kind of sets this apart is probably this. And again, I don't want to make this book into something. It's not like I'm really just going by the query letter here, but it seems to me that this kind of like relationship with the potential birth mother is kind of what's interesting. So I would go right from Jessica and Glenn Cook are devastated when they go through this experience and then go right into this apprehension about the birth mother stuff. And then that way we can kind of condense a lot of this commonness of the story um, and and kind of just move on to, to figuring out what the actual plot of the book is. And overall, you know, the structure is there. And I think that the um, author bio is great. So I think it's just really narrowing down on what is unique. And women's fiction, this tends to happen a lot. Awesome. Colleen, thanks. I'm thinking we should stop pitching books as their life was shit, utter shit, until it became perfect. And <laughs> And then I feel like that'll grab the, the agent's exactly. attention. <laughs> okay, Cece, what did you think? Oh gosh, that was funny. So, okay, I think Carly really hit the nail on the head when she mentioned that the arc just isn't there. So for me, the plot paragraph is the most important paragraph in the query for me, right? Like I'm an agent, I care about all the paragraphs, don't get me wrong, but I care more about the story. However much I, I adore my clients, I adore their stories even more. So Right now, this writer is is taking up a lot of space for a setup when really you're supposed to be showing the arc. And so here's what I mean by that. Like the first paragraph is all about how they want a child. And I realize that there's detail there that's important, things like the backyard, things like, you know, the fact that she chose a career that she works with children, but it's still 98 words. To, to say that they want a kid. And so I do think you can like trim that down significantly. And then the next paragraph, um, I thought, okay, so here we go, right? Like we're going to get the arc, but really we just got more feelings, which is important. And I'm not suggesting you remove that, but there's just a lot on like, well, the current view is this. And, you know, after so much loss already, this feels too threatening. So then she worries, like it's, it, we're going through her feelings step by step, which which we should when we read the pages, but for the query letter, it's taking up too much space. So I think that um, it might make sense to, to start with 
whatever inciting incident actually happens. Like you can use two lines for the setup of they want they want a child, but they've gone through miscarriages, and and you know we'll be all be heartbroken when we read that. But then then let's get to the plot, right? Like we need we need the plot to be there. I was also really wondering about the narration here, because especially now when I heard Carly's critique, I I think that the open adoption angle might be really interesting. And clearly it's already there because it's already in the query letter. So assuming the story matches that, I'm thinking to myself, like, is this going to be narrated by like Jessica, Jessica alone, Jessica and Glenn, perhaps Jessica and Glenn, and I don't know, some other woman who was pregnant. I don't, I don't know. And I don't, I don't have to have that answer in the query letter. Like you're absolutely not under any obligation to say this is narrated by XYZ. But if it is dual POV, I think it would be interesting because I think it would help with the setup. And again, one of the reasons why I'm struggling and I want to know these things is because I don't know the arc. So when we don't know the arc, we start asking all these questions about the narration, about the about the setting, because we try to figure out like what the plot is about. I also would suggest adding a content warning, just because miscarriages are, uh, it's something that almost every woman has gone through in, in some way, whether you feared it, or you've gone through it, or your best friend or sister, it's just, it's so common, and it's something we don't talk about as much. So I think a content warning would be extra sensitive and nice. And I don't want the writer to worry, because content warnings are something quite recent. So I'm sure that this will not affect your chance in any way but you know if you're still going to send something out I would I would add a nice content for it and I really really love the last paragraph especially the labradoodle bring on all the dogs okay Carly what did you think of the opening pages this is just completely on me I didn't know that we were opening with a prologue just because the way my computer formatted this the way that I opened it I, it just like it the prologue title kind of slipped off the page so I thought we were getting right into the book itself so I was just like a little bit like oh okay we're just kind of kind of just in a in a moment here where there's a bunch of moms you know at a playground and this woman is kind of like sitting with like clutching her purse um this kind of what we're getting and she's seeing all of these kids fighting and arguing and climbing and she's just like witnessing mothers mothering and and nannies nannying and, and such so uh one of the things I was a bit confused about with this prologue is again I think this is because the first time I read it I also thought maybe this was chapter one but this is very like we are witnessing a scene which means that we aren't we're kind of this this external observer which makes us distant and I don't really like feeling distant when I'm starting a novel I really want to feel immersed so this was it kind of, it, but it also does the job of like, we are also this woman, right? We're looking through her eyes and, and observing the scene. So I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about it. I think this is just a personal taste thing, which maybe this isn't my favorite type of opening and that's fine. So I think this is just a taste thing. But for me, I'm like, eh, I kind of wish I was a bit more immersed in the scene. One of the examples I had was just, you know, she's talking about all this action on the playground. Like, can we narrate a scene, whether it's like, two kids fighting or a toddler has a fall and, and a caretaker rushes to the kid. Like I just felt like it was so passive and so distant. It was almost very numbing. Right. And this character is feeling very numb, but that makes me feel really numb. Right. Because that idea is that we are witnessing with them. So that was my main concern. I just kind of wanted to just be in the moment a bit more. And then the next thing I was confused about is I almost, I, again, Cece and Bianca maybe can, can tell me this. I, I almost felt like we almost switched POVs because it says, Two benches down, another woman sat, but her eyes seemed vacant as she stared forward, expressionless. 
And then I'm like, oh, did we just head hop? Like I was really confused at that point. But ultimately my main concern is the same thing that I say every time with prologues is that the inherent idea of a prologue, again, is distant, is very separate. And also we're not invested in these characters yet. But this particular prologue is kind of an every woman prologue. And so I'm not against this prologue necessarily because again, I think it does the job of witnessing a scene that many people can relate to. I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, wishy-washy um, about whether it's as effective as it possibly could be. But I'm not saying strike through. And then we get into chapter one and she is at the doctor's office. And then we go back to the scene of the miscarriage happening on the page, essentially. And I I had a note there about the, the potential for a content warning. Ultimately, like I know in the query letter that this is a book about miscarriage. So I, I almost felt like this query, that's why I didn't mention it in the query like CC did. Like I, I get that it's about that, but I do think that CC is right. There's no harm in adding a content warning because I've pitched a book before that had a miscarriage. It wasn't even in the opening pages, I think, but you know, it was near the beginning of the book and an editor commented on it. And this was back but kind of before we did trigger warnings and content warnings. So I would say this is this falls into the category of something that you would want to include a content warning on. So that's kind of my main notes there, but I'm really curious to hear about Cece and Bianca's take on the prologue and, and whether they were head hopping and, and all of this other stuff I was confused about. Yeah, just on that, you know, I, I read it a few times and you initially think it's kind of close to one of the characters, but because all the mothers are she, you it's very confusing to know whether we are doing an omniscient narrator who's hopping into different mothers' heads, or if the she is the one mother who's looking at all the other mothers who are looking at all of the other children. So that's where the confusion comes in. So it could just be that it's close to the one character and she is the she that's being referred to, but because that's not clear, it could be head hopping, which then makes it confusing. I agree very much with Carly there. Cece, what was your take? I am 100% convinced this is omniscient and I'm 100% convinced this prologue has to go. So, so that's my take. Um, here's why, um, or at least like significantly revised. And, and here's why. So in terms of smaller notes, I want to say that, you know, by the second paragraph, I was writing down on the margins, like my heart is like filling up with all this emotion for this woman. So, so good job, because that's what you want, right? The problem is that it then became repetitive. This is a CC thing, like subtle writing. I do not like repetition. I do not like on the nose. And I'll give you examples of what I mean by repetitive. So paragraph three, her mind was filled with a deep yearning and she whispered to herself, why, why not me? I, first of all, don't even think we need that because I was already getting that this was a woman who was torturing herself. She actually uses the word torture by going to a playground and looking at children when she herself can't, at least till now, be a mom, right? So I, I honestly don't think there's anyone in this world who can't relate. But then on the second page, literally at the end of the, I think it's the fifth paragraph. I don't know. It's, she says it again. Why them and not her? So truly, this is not something we need. And I know that this is the other woman, right? Like we're going to another woman. It's, it's what Carly said. It's the every woman's prologue. But it's not effective. It is head hopping. And I am convinced it's head hopping because of the line. There's one line that's like one bench down. There's this woman, two benches down. There's this. And then there's one line that's like on the other side of the park, another woman sat. And we go into her head. 
right? Like I understand I think I understand what the author meant, which is probably to show that all these women were sitting there and they weren't talking to each other and they were all in their heads. And and it's very powerful symbolism because infertility issues, miscarriages issues, um, wanting to start a family but not being able to, these are things that are invisibly connecting so many women in the world. And I say invisibly because as a society, we don't talk about it. It's getting a little bit better now, but it is something that we don't discuss as openly as as perhaps we should. And so I understand the symbolism, it's beautiful, but it's not making me connect to one person. So the idea is to make this an every woman's prologue. I thought of two things. One, the POV in the prologue could be the playground. Like you could make the playground a character. And that way the head hopping wouldn't be so, first of all, it wouldn't be head hopping, right? Like the playground itself would come to life and it could be quirky and, and, and interesting. Or a child. You could pick one child who's looking at all these women and the child could be walking around the playground, you know, observing all these all these mommy types, even if they're not all of them are moms. But for a child, every grown woman is a mom. I can't tell you how many times the neighborhood kids have asked me, do you have a kid? And I, and I only have like fur babies, right? So- and they ask this of every woman they look because they look at a woman who's older. So maybe it could be from the child's point of view. If you're, if you're set on the prologue, I would say pick one person and not one of the women. Pick either a, an object, I don't know, a ball or a setting like the playground or a child because I don't think that this is the best way to do it. And then, oh my gosh, chapter one. Okay, first of all, I want to say I love the doctor as a woman. I want everyone listening to this to please go over their manuscripts and check for all tip authority figures, doctors, engineers, scientists, police people, anyone, and make them women if you can, because this is important for fiction. But also, you're breaking the golden rule of, of the podcast, which is no flashback. And if this is intentional, that's okay. I'm reading a book right now that starts with a flashback, so I, I know that sometimes it happens. But I don't think we need the flashback. I think we can start with the flashback if that's important. And I will say though, and I don't, I hope this doesn't sound super insensitive because maybe it's the intention. And again, so much of publishing is subjective and it's about matchmaking, right? So you have to match the reader with the with the writer. I think the scene is too graphic for the beginning, especially. I it's very well written, it's, it's accurate, but it's it was intense. Like I read this and I'm usually not someone like unless it's animal stuff, usually I'm like, I'm fine. But I was like, oh gosh, this this wasn't this was a lot. So your job is to make me feel curious. I didn't feel curious at the end. It's not that there aren't questions to ask. There are questions, but curiosity comes from active emotion. And grief, loss, longing, these are all passive emotions. So you have a big challenge ahead of yourself, which is to create that active emotion. So I don't know if this is told in more than one POV, maybe start with with another POV, someone whose emotions are more, or maybe give her an active goal on the scene, even if her emotions are are passive, which is totally fine because a lot of the times our emotions are, maybe give her an active goal. Okay, thanks, Cece. Something I just want to talk about is writing on a line level. I, I firmly believe that nine times out of 10, when agents turn down something that they're looking at, it's because the writing just isn't there at the, the line level. Because as an agent, you can speak to people about characterization and pacing and tension and structure, but writing at a line level is really, really tough to correct. And that's why this is a course I'm going to have coming up because it's a thing I see most recurring in my students' writing. And I just want to give examples here just because this is something that many, many, many writers do. And I think that 
you know, most of our listeners can go back to their own manuscripts and learn from this and apply it. So here we go. We've got a sentence. She felt her breath catch. She could feel the tears coming. Stay away from words like she felt, she saw, she heard, she whatever. Just go straight into it. Her breath caught and the tears came. Okay. The fact that we are being told about it tells us that she could feel it happening. Things like as well, a lot of emerging writers tend to focus on parts of the body as if they're doing things of their own accord. So, you know, things like her hand went to her belly, just she touched her belly, which was hard and protruding, as opposed to like her hand acting kind of on its own. And things like her eyes wandered to another woman sitting on a bench nearby. You know, this is something that Dean Kuntz <laughs> has has huge issues with. He talks about how eyes can't wander of their own accord. They don't pop out of our head and go wandering to someone else. So yes, her gaze wandered, but her eyes did not wander. You know, so so try try and look for those kinds of phrases in in your manuscript and take them out and just go straight to the thing that that you are describing, as opposed to she saw you know, for example, the leaves falling from the trees, just the leaves fell from the trees. The fact that we've been told about it means she saw it. Okay, so that's just advice for all of you out there to check your manuscripts for that. Okay, Carly, would you like to read the next query letter for us? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, my name is Jay Campbell, and my debut novel, Lost in the Woods, is a new adult contemporary fiction coming in at 65,000 words. Lost in the Woods emphasizes the the importance of genuine human connection and a deep respect for nature. The tone of the novel is meant to be lighthearted but emotionally reflective, taking on a slower pace in order to highlight character development. The novel tackles topics such as identity, sexuality, relationship dynamics, family bonds, and nature's impact on mental health and understanding of self. This novel strives to emulate the wholesome atmosphere of Schitt's Creek, the masterful way Richard Wagamese depicts nature, trauma, and family dynamics in Keeper and Me, and also aspires to explore life and loss, similarly to Lily King's Writers and Lovers. 24-year-old Rhiannon Griffin and her teenage twin sisters, Layla and Iris, are looking for a fresh start after experiencing a dramatic shift in their familial foundation. Feeling stuck in their lives in the city, the sisters decide to move to a small fictional town in northern Ontario called Greenridge for some much-needed tranquility and clarity. In desperate need of a place to stay, the sisters find themselves at a rustic, and not in a good way, former hunt camp on a lake miles away from civilization. The owner, Lorna, offers them a free place to stay in exchange for their help in bringing the property to its full potential. Through navigating the change of pace into small town life, connecting with nature and the ups and downs that come with Northern living, the sisters are able to work towards forming their own identities. After being a caregiver for her ailing father and younger sisters for the last eight years, Rhiannon finally has space to focus on herself and her own needs and aspirations. While Layla and Iris, each at critical stages in their development, have the chance to completely start over and form meaningful connections with others for what seems like the first time. As the town slowly grows to feel like their home, each of the girls are faced with life-changing decisions that will potentially take them away from this safe haven. New friendships, romantic relationships, and other emotional ties make their decision that much more difficult. Either way, Greenridge will forever take up space in their hearts for being the home they never knew they deserved. At 22 years old, I have lived 
spent most of my life in Toronto with my family. However, my heart has belonged to the North since I was very young. Spending so much time immersed in nature has shaped the person I've become and also been the main inspiration for this novel. I recently completed my BA in English Literature from Trent University, and since graduating, my love for writing and literature has only continued to grow. I currently have been taking time to work on my writing before starting my MA in Creative Writing at the University of Roehampton, London in September 2021. As a proud Baldy, I'm also passionate about spreading awareness and normalizing baldness in women and youth through my social media platforms, mainly on my YouTube channel, Bald and Bougie. Thank you so much for your time and feedback. All the best, Jay Campbell. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. Cece, what were your thoughts on the query list? Small things. One thing that I think really helps with readability is to put the title in all caps. The writer here put it in quotation marks. And I know it sounds so silly, but we talk about readability all the time. And there's a reason like, please remember you are sending this to over-caffeinated agents who are reading, I don't know, a batch of 50 or so queries at a time. So it's, it would help. It would help if you, if you did that. The first paragraph, the first sentence tells me the title, genre, and word count. Great. As of sentence two, it gets a little tricky and I'll tell you why. We have five other sentences, right? Like as of sentence two. One of them tells me the theme of the story. The other one tells me the tone of the story. The other one tells me the pace. And another one tells me the topic. And then the final one tells me the goal. The final one, like I'll give you a pass because it's really just the comps. You're just really just writing them like a goal. Like this novel aspires to be, which is fine. I personally think you could just say it's for fans of, but okay. But I don't want to be told the theme and the tone and the pace and the topic. I'm sorry. I want you to just tell me the story. It's. It, I understand why you did this. I think it's great that you've, dissected your work and understand the themes. It's amazing, but it's vague. It's vague and it's also missing the point. The point is we want to connect to to the hero's journey, right? And then when we get to the second paragraph, I'm also like, oh gosh, so like I'm hoping for more specificity, but it's Rihanna and after experiencing a dramatic shift in the familial foundation, like, are you not telling me what that shift was on purpose? Because... I want to know what that shift was. It seems to be part of the setup, so it's okay to tell me. Like, now I think it's no dad dying, right? Like, having read the pages, but I have no idea still. And then, again, the next sentence, feeling stuck in their lives. Like, that's vague. How are they stuck? Like, it could be so many things. And then the next sentence, again, uh, much we needed, uh, sorry, desperate need of a place to stay. I'm like, desperate? That seems dramatic. Um, I, I like desperate. Desperate is great for stories, but like, how is it desperate? I don't get it. So things start shaping up when like Lorna offers them a free place to stay. So I'm like, okay, I get, I get, I think I start getting the hook here. This is starting to shape up, but then it goes vague again. Like they're unable to, sorry, uh, working towards forming their own identities. What does that mean? Like uh, they're going to start over and form meaningful connections. I'm like, again, I don't, it's not that these things aren't important, but they could describe, I think all of the books on the bookshelf behind me and nobody can see me. So I don't know why I'm pointing, but there are tons of books behind me and meaningful connections, exploring identity. Like these are themes that so many books tackle. And I don't mean to say, oh, your story has been done. No, no, no. I mean, like focus on the plot, focus on the specific events. If you're worried about spoilers, I get it, but it's not spoilers unless you're giving away something that happens like with a plot twist as of the climax. I also don't think that the sentence that starts with either way, uh, Green Ridge will forever take up space in their hearts 
that sentence kind of removes any of the tension that you had set up. Like, because you're saying either way it works, it's all good. And so don't do that. Yeah. I, I really liked the last paragraph. That was great. I do think, however, that this query letter needs to be rewritten to focus on the story and not on theme, tone, pace, emotion, like none of that. Awesome. Cece, Carly, what were your thoughts? I had a lot of the similar, a lot of similar thoughts. I really like the Schitt's Creek reference. I think if you're talking about small towns and I don't know, that kind of identity, I just thought that was so good. And it also seems like the girls escaped the city to get to the country. And I love that. And I love themes of nature. I mean, if you've read my clients like Lendi Vandera, you know, you know how much I love nature. So I think all of that is wonderful. And I think there's so much to discover about ourselves in nature. That said, I don't think we need to tell the, you know, the agent that I think that should come through in the writing itself. So I definitely agree with Cece and a lot of this. I also think you need to tell us what the dramatic shift in the familial foundation is. I... As Cece said, we kind of know it's the dad dying, but they had to have a mother at some point, biologically or adoptive or some point. So I don't really know what happened to the mother as well. So I wasn't sure if there was something there. I was trying to figure out like what the hook was, as I usually do. And, uh, and I think Cece hit the nail on the head here. It's they try to find themselves somewhere to stay. They find themselves in a hunt camp and they have to update the place, you know, in order to to earn their keep. I think that's great. I think it's, you know, three young women <laughs> move to the move to a hunt camp um, to revitalize it. And and I think, you know, there's a lot to play around with in terms of the emotionality and the literary sense of this book. But the book still has to be about something, right? The book is not about feelings. The book is about these girls. And I say girls loosely. Obviously there's two younger ones and a 24 year old. So I'm saying, you know, girls, women collectively. But yeah, this is about three young women moving to the country with no money, no identity. They need somewhere to live and, you know, when someone takes them in. So I think that's what it's about. And through this really cohesive hook, you're able to then execute this literary vision that you have for the project. But the book still has to be about something. I was also confused on whether this was a multi-POV project or not. You know, we talk about Rhiannon finally has space to focus on herself, her own needs and aspirations. And then it says, well, Layla and Iris, each at critical stages in their development. Like, how do we explore these coming-of-age stories of the three women, um, these three young women? I'm just still a bit confused on the actual execution of this. And when we take so much time in this query that are talking about feelings and themes, what I'm missing is kind of what I need, which is learning more about this POV and the structure and and exactly how you're going to execute this vision for this literary project. So a lot of this just ends up being not specific enough and a lot of lists and collection of thoughts and ideas. For me, really just, I would just rewrite the whole thing. And I say that with love because really it's just, we have to figure out what this book is about, right? You're pitching a book. You're not pitching feelings. So pitch me the book. Tell me what happens in the book without giving the ending away. Make it dramatic. And then once the agent requests the pages, they're going to get all of this wonderful stuff that you've, you've built into this project. But the query letter isn't the time to show all your cards, right? The query letter is the time to execute a query letter. And that's what your job is at this point. And otherwise, it seems like you have a really interesting hook here, right? It's just a little bit buried. And, and that's what we want to kind of like tease out, kind of massage out of this query to, to figure out exactly what it is and, and how it can come to life in, in the biggest possible way. I loved your author bio paragraph. I thought it was great. I would cut the line that says, and since graduating, my love for writing and literature has only continued to grow. We just don't need that. And I looked up your YouTube page and it's awesome. So I, you should probably 
probably include a link to that um, when you're pitching agents. I thought that was really great. Awesome. Carly, thank you. Right. Cece, what did you think of the opening pages? All right. So we're at a funeral. The first thing that I wasn't sure was whose head we were in. And I thought it was Rhiannon at first, and I think it was, but then we started head hopping to Layla and Iris. If it's intentional to keep it omniscient, I would try to either make it one chapter per POV or um, add line breaks, or if you don't want to do any of that, really, really make it, I think, clearer whose head we're in at the beginning of each paragraph, because I got really confused and I had to go back and read it again. And that's something you you don't want. I'm mindful that the query letter said that this is intentionally going at a slower pace. And I want to honor the writer's vision because the writer is the god of this world and their vision is the only one that matters at the end of the day. Personally, for me, I still feel like the pace can be slow, but without so much telling, especially background information, I don't think we need background information. And there was just a lot. And there are some really cute sentences. Like, for example, there's a line that says, everyone in their lives had either died or left. So there was no one she could turn to for stories. And that's something that's so true when you lose, especially when you're young, is when you lose someone older than you, you lose their stories. And that is such a powerful sentiment. So it's not that it's not that I didn't appreciate the things that were being said. I just think it can be compressed. I don't think we need to know that, uh, I don't know, that, that Brianna had just managed to finish high school. That was a miracle of itself. Like, it's just a lot of background info. Two, and I've said this so many times on the podcast at this point, grief is not an active emotion. It can't be, right? Like no one no one goes to a funeral and wonders, oh my God, I'm, I hope what's going to happen next. Like that, that just doesn't happen. There's two challenges here. It's hard to connect when it's passive emotion. And it's also hard to connect when we're head hopping. So I wouldn't be mindful of that. I had questions. I had questions like from this point forward, they were effectively orphans. And I was thinking to myself, weren't they effectively orphans when the dad died? But maybe it's because the, the burial made it real. But then I think, you know, seeing their her, her, their dad's body being lowered to the ground made it real. Like, I think that a line like that might, might help. Not because I was confused. I wasn't confused. I could understand the symbolism, but because I think that you were telling me so much about things that weren't important, but then you didn't when it came to this. I thought it was really interesting that they had never been to a funeral before, like their first funeral being their dad's funeral. So I would just maybe try to flesh that out as the chapter's hook, almost like it was the sister's first funeral as the first line. I think that would make it be like, be like really interesting. On page, I'm on page six. There's a small dialogue that's like, ready to head out? Rhiannon asked. Yeah, let's go, Iris said. I think this is breaking, again, another one of the golden rules of, of the podcast, which is that dialogue needs to do at least two things. And one thing is always going to be to say what, what the people are saying. And the other thing has to be, I don't know, either something with characterization, character development, explaining what's being left unsaid, setting something, right? Like dialogue can't be used for just one thing. It's not efficient. But again, maybe this is intentional. And if it is, that's okay. I don't feel connected to any of these women because I am in all their heads. And I need to know how they're going to feel, especially in a sibling relationship. I need to know how they feel about each other. And so if I don't know whose head we're in, I don't know whether the thing that's being said about Iris is how Iris feels about herself or whether it's how Layla feels about Iris. And that matters so much. So again, omniscient can be done. There are some great books out there that are omniscient, but you can't ever have a doubt about whose head you're in. You can't. That confusion can't be there. And for me, it's it's here. So that would be that would be my note. And I hope it's helpful. 
Yeah, I feel for the author because I know how difficult it is to write um, funeral scenes. My debut had a funeral scene in which a nine-year-old girl is at her parents' funeral. And I wrote that to be comedic, which was especially, especially tough. So I really, really feel feel your pain there. Carly, what were your thoughts on, on the pages? Well, firstly, I want to say, Cece, I love that we're starting to collect golden rules of the podcast. And I just had this idea that we should do some sort of contest and like try to get everybody to collect the golden rules of the podcast so we can pull them all together. So we'll think of something we can do for that. But if anybody wants to start listening for gems, because Cece and I don't like to listen to ourselves in recording. So let us know what the gems are that you guys hear that we say off to the pages here. I really liked the first paragraph. I also kind of really liked the first page. You know, this is a 22-year-old author who is very talented. You know, there's a lot of really quality, quality work here. So I just want to, you know, say, you know, you are, you have some skills and we're just trying to help you execute them a little bit better uh, in a way that makes them more saleable, right? So I think I had the same echoes uh, as CC kind of as these pages go on, which is about the head hopping. I am confused about the POV. I just really wanted to feel a lot more invested in this, but I think not knowing whose head we're in, you know, I'm confused. Being omniscient in a scene that's very emotionally driven is very hard for me to kind of fully feel invested in this. And I also felt we were too long in this scene, you know, where I really felt like we should be having, um, you know, we should be in the moment and then the girls can talk on the way back to the car, you know, getting drenched in the rain, you know, holding their umbrellas. Like there is a really cinematic appeal to this. And the author is very self-aware. They even said like how ironic it is that it's raining in a funeral scene, but the author like created this world. So this is all their vision. Like there's a lot of real, real skill here um, that I wanted to compliment. But I do think, yeah, we kind of got to be ed- in and out of the scene faster. We need to know who's speaking. And as Cece said, we need to know what everybody's relationship is to each other. And because this is more literary, it's okay to start slower in terms of figuring out and and feeling out exactly like what this book is. And part of the curiosity of literary fiction is starting to figure out how we can get our claws into this book and and the author teasing us in terms of kind of like slowly building out what the drama is. So there's there's a lot here that's working, but I think I would just echo all of Cece's thoughts here and and just kind of make sure we are feeling invested and and we know who's speaking. Great way to do head hopping in a scene that's got three characters in a way that the reader doesn't get lost is you just do those scene breaks so it's one kind of chunk that is one particular sister then you separate that with the hashtag going to another bit of chunk of information that's the other sister so they it's like you get a 360 view of what's happening in all of their heads but the reader's never confused as to whose head they're in at each you know particular moment um Jodie Picot does that quite well in terms of her structure how she breaks it up into these little chunks of scenes with within scenes so so that's something you can use quite effectively there as well all right I am going to read the third query letter Here we go. Dear Bianca, Cece and Carly, thank you for all the valuable information you share in the podcast and especially for the Books with Hook segment. I'd love a query critique because after consulting PS Literary's submission guidelines, I need help condensing my three paragraph brief overview into one paragraph. And of course, feedback on the query itself would be very helpful. The query and first five pages are below. I'm seeking representation for Everybody Knows, a 95,000 word upmarket novel about 
friendship and change in which the owner of a vintage trailer park must find a way to save it from redevelopment when her small town is invaded by hipsters in search of rustic charm and hashtag MTN life. It will appeal to readers of J. Ryan Straddles, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, and Julie Langdorf's White Elephant, a novel. For as long as she can remember, Benita Baker has dreamed of being a globe-trotting explorer, but one thing or another has been in her way. The patriarchy, a husband, a child, elderly in-laws, a trailer park. A few years ago, she and her husband finally had money in the bank and plans to see the world, or at least North America, after they paid off their mortgage. Then her husband died expensively, so she had to adjust to living alone for the first time and delay her goals again. Now she has a new problem, a big, smelly problem. The Juniper Gulch trailer court septic system has gone bad and she doesn't have the cash to fix it. When she turns to her brother-in-law, her mortgage holder and the local mayor for help, he wants her to sell the place. Gentrification is creeping uphill from Denver to their little mining town. Real estate prices are rising and he thinks that the Gulch would look a lot better lined with McMansions than cluttered with trailers. If Benita sold out, she could travel for a while, but then she'd be homeless along with her residents, 25 families she considers her own. And she'd be jobless. Trailer Park Wrangler is the only career she's ever had. She'd have to start over somewhere cheaper than Colorado and far from her besties, wisecracking, mischief-making, dope-smoking grandmothers she's been merrily raising hell with since kindergarten. She has to find a way to save the gulch without relinquishing her dreams. I moved to the foothills during Colorado's previous population boom to work in the construction industry. Now I write in a sunny corner with my earbuds blasting to muffle my dogs barking at wildlife and my family chattering at co-workers and classmates. This is my first novel. Thanks for your consideration, Lisa. Okay, Carly, why don't you let us know what you think of that query letter? Well, it started off for me with a great title as soon as I read everybody knows the next thing I did was go to YouTube and play Leonard Cohen's everybody knows so I was just like bopping the Leonard Cohen while I was reading this one so I don't know I was just in the right mood for this I loved it everything here you know the 95,000 word up market novel great like this first paragraph is like textbook execution perfect in terms of how to get right to the hook great comps and I just had like oh yes in the comments uh in my notes here because I just thought um it was super well done as I bopped to Leonard Cohen overall like this is really interesting right like we don't read a lot about upmarket novels in a vintage trailer park in a very self-aware that's like hashtag mountain life you know what I mean like this is a very self-aware concept which I really liked I wasn't sure if this was comedic or not. That was something I was confused about. I'm leaning towards thinking it possibly is comedic, but again, I didn't want to make assumptions about it. And I always say like, you don't want to call your novel funny, but I just kind of wanted to know, is it darkly comedic, right? We have this line, her husband dies expensively. <laughs> like how brilliant is that, right? It's It could be he had a very slow, painful death with very expensive hospital bills, or it could be like he went 
went down in a hot air balloon of blazing glory, right? So I want to kind of want to know, like, what is this expensive death? And is it comedic or not? Because I love dark comedy, love dark comedy. And so if he's going down in a blaze of glory, it's kind of funny, right? That that dark, you know, funeral humor. Also, like poop is funny, right? Like the septic tank gone bad is kind of hilarious. <laughs> One of my friends, Anna Maximu, um, wrote a memoir called Dirty Work. And there's a chapter just about like the septic system at a fishing lodge. Like it's funny, right? It's funny. So I, again, but not sure whether this author is like pushing me into direction of whether it's funny or not. I'm, I'm hoping it's funny because again, I think that gives it an extra edge, but I just wanted like a teeny bit more direction um, in terms of whether I should feel that it's funny or not. And that was one of my, that was kind of my main notes. The next note was just how old is she? She says her friends are grandmas and she had or has elderly in-laws. So I'm getting the sense that she's probably comparable to this grandmother's age, but you know, you can be a grandma at many different ages. So I wasn't really sure exactly how old she was. And I also wasn't sure where her child was because she said things have been in the way, right? A husband, a child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So is this child still in her life? Again, maybe all of this is to come, but as Cece says, you know, questions are good. Curiosity is good. So this built a really strong foundation for me uh, and I would absolutely request the pages. Awesome. All right, Cece, what was your thought on the query? So I think this is a really well-written query. And I, you know, before we get into the query itself, there's a paragraph that's just for us. And she says, I need help condensing my three paragraphs into one paragraph. And this is because uh, on our website, if you go to the PS Literary website, we suggest like three paragraphs, like one for the you know title, genre, word count, et cetera, one for the plot and one for like about you. I just want to say, because I, because of the way my brain is wired, I am also very literal minded. And so I empathize so much with the author's request. So I actually went back and checked um, the last three authors I signed from the slush pile to see if they had written three paragraphs exactly. Cause I don't think you have to follow that literally. So one person had five paragraphs and a thank you line in 330 words. Another person had three paragraphs, they managed to do it, and a thank you line in 237 words. And the third person had four paragraphs and a thank you line in 338 words. So my just which is just to say that you have 330 and 76 words, sorry. You're fine in terms of the word count. Um, and it's okay to have five paragraphs. Like if you wanna split the plot paragraph into two, you're allowed to do that. It's really more about like not, going over the, not making it too long. It's not really about the number of paragraphs. So anyway, I am very literal minded. It's something I struggle with all the time. So, and it was way better when I was a lawyer because you're supposed to be literal minded as a lawyer. But um, I just want to like reassure the writer that you don't actually have to do it in three paragraphs if that's not what's best for your query. Although you can't really, really like everything that's here. I was super curious about her age too. I figured that her kid was probably just grown and grown um, and probably like still in her life, but like doing their own thing because she was about to travel the world, right? So I, again, just an assumption. I have no idea. I almost wonder though, and this is just me being like more stakes, more stakes. If we couldn't like heighten the tension even more by saying that, I don't know, the developer or is like a cute guy she went to school with and or like a rival that's even better than, than a cute guy. I don't know. I just wanted like more pressure cooker situation because the setup and the inciting incident is so great. And I love that she's like fighting for like her home and the town's identity. And that's amazing. It gave me like all adults here um, vibes by Emma 
job, I think. So I really like this. And I'm not, I don't feel like anything's missing. But because we are critiquing, if there's anything else that happens in the present day, you could add a line about that. Although again, you don't have to. This is really great. This is really, really great. See, with my morbid sense of humor, I'm like, you should change this title to Shit Happens. No, don't change the title to Shit Happens. I'm just joking. Okay, uh, Carly, what are your thoughts on the opening pages? Um, so we start off with a little classified ad, which is an advertisement to rent a quote-unquote tiny home. I'm putting I'm putting the quotes in because um, obviously it's the trailer. But um, I think this is kind of poking fun at that like HDTV kind of angle where it's like tiny home for rent. It's a vintage trailer. So I just thought, again, this is this is piquing all of my curiosity because like I just want to know yeah I just have a feeling this is like a really funny smart book I just have that feeling about this and then we get into a description of the scene so we're talking about you know the we're kind of getting a description I guess this is third person yeah we're getting a third person kind of point of view here we're describing what everything looks like the sun hasn't come up yet but we're kind of checking out exactly what these um, sheet metal covers look like on these trailer parts on these trailers in the park and and things like that so I do feel like we're spending too much time in the setup here I really wish that we were moving right into like dialogue and action because it seems like there's some really interesting characters on this trailer park kind of community and I would love to meet some of them ASAP and also there's just so much you can do through dialogue here right like it could be somebody complaining about their neighbors you know because what what she's kind of doing here is she's saying like she's talking about the structure and are they run down or improving them and things like that so I think that you know even just having an argument between two neighbors about like what they think about their potted plants out front or something like that could be really great in a way to kind of show that aesthetic conversation that she's having with herself but having it in dialogue and meeting some characters and really just like immersing us in this because she's trying to immerse us in what everything looks like but I also want to know what it feels like and it sounds like and it smells like and I don't know I mean I um, really just think there's so much here that's really unique and special and I just didn't really feel like we tackled this from like a five senses point of view but yeah overall I'm really curious about this book I, I think it has I think it has something special and something interesting awesome thanks Carly Cece what were your thoughts I want to echo all of Carly's notes yeah so I was reading this and writing and I always write notes on the margins and I think the description is really beautiful and really well done. I, you know, this author can write. I laughed when there was a line that said, too bad there weren't any reality shows when she and Doyle took over because it's true, right? Like if this had happened in in our reality TV show world with HGTV, she might've become like the trailer park queen or whatever. And it's funny. And I really, really like seeing her interact with her surroundings because I'm guessing that this might be a situation where the trailer park is a character too. And that's interesting. And we know that the plot is connected to the setting, right? So that's interesting as well. However, even when a setting is a character, even when a setting is essential to plot, you still want to start with human interaction. So again, echoing Carly's notes, I kept thinking like she would sometimes mention interactions that happened, like a neighbor complaining, like there was an example where she mentioned like the only time she'd gone to visit her son and granddaughter for a week, she came back to find that Hector in number 17 had loaded his roof with tires. And then there's a whole whole thing about the interaction, which is very short, but I'm like, why don't we start with an interaction like that, right? Because that's just more interesting. So then by the last paragraph, on the very last paragraph, we, we see someone showing up. Um, her dogs bark 
And then Bonita looks at, you know, just follows their, her dogs, assuming that they saw wildlife or something. And But really, there's this woman walking along the creek, and the dogs are being lovely to her. And this woman is wearing, I think, like, she, she, we get a description of what she's wearing, and her footwear isn't appropriate, which makes me think this is someone who is not in her element in this setting, which is interesting, right? Like you want that imbalance. You want the person who is wearing an appropriate footwear or inappropriate outfits because it shows that they don't belong there. And whenever someone doesn't belong in a place, that means there's usually something interesting coming. So my advice, and I say this like it's so easy and believe me, I know it's not, but my advice is to compress the five pages of description and explanation and background, et cetera, into one. I know, right? Like I say this like, oh yeah, just make five pages one and then have us have us meet this woman, whoever this, I'm curious, who's this woman? I want to see that interaction. So yeah, maybe even like three quarters of a page, just just to add to that challenge. The, the, this is the, the shit no one tells you about writing challenge, compress five pages into one. So is it fair? to say that this is kind of a shock tank agenting moment would you both request this manuscript i would definitely request it yeah i would definitely request it i think there's so many things that are really interesting here there's the like pitting the hgtv against like the classism angle like i think that's really interesting i think this tone of like is it comedic or not is really interesting this woman like this is essentially a women's fiction i'm using air quotes here in terms of this is a female character trying to figure out like what's going on with her life. She's essentially a businesswoman running her own business. Like there's so much here that is so interesting from just like a female character point of view. Um, but it's absolutely an upmarket novel as it was pitched, right? But I'm just saying like it is a women's journey, really just like layered with so many complexities. And I think a lot of times women's fiction novelists or aspiring women's fiction authors feel like they have to tackle like a woman's contemporary life in a way that is very cookie cutter or suburban, right? But like, I just love the setting and how unique it is. And I think, yeah, I would totally, I'd fight CC for it. <laughs> Amazing, Lisa, congratulations. You have options, baby. Right, that's it for today's Books with Hook segment. Before we go to today's guest, I just want to say for those of you who are not following us on social media, there are definite things that you are missing out on. One of which is the writing group matchmaking service that we are running. So until the 31st of August at midnight, we have a form available on my website. So www.biancamaray.com. Look for the podcast section under the menu. And there's a form there for you to fill out, giving your time zone, the genre that you work in, and a few other considerations. And if you fill out that form and you're serious about looking for a writing group, and please only do it if you are serious. Um, there's no point in doing it and then realizing afterwards that you don't have the time commitment to be able to follow through with it. But if you are serious, fill out that form by the 31st of August and by two weeks into September, you will receive an email from me in which I will match you up with other writers who are in your time zone and who are working in the same genre as you so that you can find critique partners and your people and a community to work with. I've done this a few times over the last year and have had wonderful feedback in terms of the writing groups that have already been put together. So that's just in case you're not following any of us on social media and aren't aware of that. Right, now let's go to today's guest. 
Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is the award-winning author of 10 novels, including Give Me Your Hand, You Will Know Me, The Fever, Dare Me, and The End of Everything. She received her PhD in literature from New York University. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, The Guardian, and The Believer. She is the co-creator and executive producer of USA's adaptation of Dare Me and was a staff writer on HBO's David Simon show, The Juice. She lives in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Megan Abbott. Megan, welcome to the show. What an absolute joy to get to chat to you today. I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time and I absolutely loved the turnout. So thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to. Let's dive straight in. I've got a whole bunch of questions on craft uh, that I, as I was reading this, because, you know, masterful writers make writing look simple. And this is the thing as emerging writers, we kind of read something that someone has done and they've 
done it so brilliantly and we don't see the mastery in it. We go, oh, that, that looks pretty simple. I can do that myself. And that's never the case. So before I start asking you some questions on the book, I just want to give the listeners a bit of an understanding of, of what the book's about. So The Turnout is a novel that explores the world of a ballet school and it focuses on two sisters, Dara and Marie Durant, who take over the ballet school when their parents die. They do this along with Charlie, who's Dara's husband, who was once their mother's prized student. And then everything changes when a suspicious fire damages the studio. And this is right as the annual performance of The Nutcracker is about to happen. You know, they're in rehearsals and they have to get in a contractor to quickly help them fix everything so that the show can go on. And the contractor is called Derek. Uh, He's very charismatic, but he infiltrates their lives and threatens everything. Right. So can we begin by talking about how the podcast Dirty John was kind of the initial impetus for this book? Because I got very Dirty John vibes in that, like my stomach was in knots the whole time. (laughs) Could could you tell us about that? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was sort of a big consumer of true crime. So I uh, really sort of loved that Dirty John podcast, which was about a sort of serial predator who would sort of romance women and uh, destroy their lives. And uh, it was a very, in that case, very violent person too. And it was really, you know, it was so popular when it came out and there was so much reaction to it on social media. And it's really surprised that how many of the comments were women that were very angry and not at this guy who had sort of brutalized and and possibly murdered people, but the women who fell for him. um, And they would say things like, how could they be so stupid? All the red flags were there. And it was such a strange response. And it sort of was trying to think about what was behind it. Were they trying to sort of make sure, you know, this could never happen to me um, because you're stupid and I'm smart or some kind of way of warding it off or something. But so I wanted to write something about, in this case, uh, you know, one sister sort of judging another sister's romance romantic choices and sort of get behind that and figure out what might be behind it. That is so interesting that that was the case with with that podcast. I mean, firstly, it's classic victim blaming. Mm -hmm. Uh, And secondly, like you say, what is that? Are they holding that up as a shield to be like, I would have seen through him or, you know, I would never have fallen for that. But that's the thing about people with charisma. I mean, this is why you have cult yeah. leaders and, you know, all of all, all of these people who run Ponzi schemes and, and things like that. They're extremely charismatic people. And I feel like when you read about them or you listen to what they've done on a podcast, you know, you're removed from that. You're not around that charisma because it's a kind of attraction, you know, it's, it's yeah. magnetism. Yeah, people that can do that, that have that power, they really can find your vulnerability. And um, and that's something that I think from the outside can be hard to see, that they they figure out something about you, what what you're missing, what your sort of fear points are, what your, you know, your 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 love language, all these things, and they um, manipulate you through that. And I, I think that's really scary to all of us, to the notion of sort of being taken in by it. But we all have vulnerable moments and we all have vulnerability 
feel at ease. So I think that it's sort of better to not say that could never happen to me, but actually to be more attuned to the possibility that, that it could. But, you know, I think it, it makes people really nervous, um, the, that, that idea of being seduced without knowing it. And, uh, you know, after that, that podcast came out, there was a book that um, someone had written, a nonfiction book. It was a psychologist who'd written it about people who are con artists. And it looked at some of the most successful con artists in the world. And it looked at the charisma of these con artists. And it looked at how they kind of draw people in and how they are so brilliantly able to focus what it is that somebody wants that they don't even realize what they want. And then they're able to give it to that person, which immediately gets them inside the door in a way that other people can't. I think the book was called Mastermind, but even harder for people to be in the presence of somebody like Derek is for an author like you to write about Derek. You know, it yeah. is the way you handled that was really, really masterful because there was an, an element of an unreliable narrator. And we'll discuss that shortly. But but just before we get to that, I just want to talk about the subject of themes that writers return to again and again, either topics or themes or, or elements of writing. And it was Anne Royf who said, it's true. We tend to write about the same thing over and over again, because this is our trauma. If I'd been in World War II, I might have been writing about D-Day over and over again. Uh, and I don't know that it's just trauma. I feel like there's a fascination for each writer in that we are drawn to certain themes and things that we want to tackle repeatedly. I know I do it in my own work. And in your work, what I absolutely love is how you write about bodies because most writers tend to be all cerebral and woo woo and you know it's about the mind and emotions and experiences uh, and all these things but you really zone in on the body and you focus on that could you discuss why that's a compelling theme for you yeah I mean I really think all that is true I have this um, little quote taped above my computer that says we're all just trying to solve one case and I think that sort of is the how I think about the novels sort of revealing themselves through the, the the subject they pick or the themes they return to, and it's really been made aware to me how much I write about bodies. I know I don't think I would have identified it on my own, but I mean I do think you know you know I was never an athlete, I was never a dancer, I was never uh, I never had that kind of feeling of mastery that athletes and dancers do, and it's always really fascinated me to feel like you have control over. Over your body and you can make it do these sort of beautiful things. I, it was something that seemed so remote and impossible to me always. Um, and you know, I remember standing there in ballet class and looking at all the other girls in the mirror and not knowing how, like, how do you do that? So I think that that really has obviously stuck with me. And I you know, certainly still think about it so much and think about characters through their bodies. Maybe it's a way of also keeping it feel grounded and real to me when when a, a lot of these these books are very atmospheric and a little high, you know they're a little heightened but the body keeps it keeps it grounded yeah two things that I want to say on that one is you know I, I think you said in an interview you only did two years of ballet and you weren't very great and you moved on to tap and then weren't very great yeah. <laughs> at, at that and I could relate because I did ballet for nine years from when I was four oh. until I was 13 went on point shoes 
Um, I hated it. As a little girl, I loved it. Obviously, it's the tutus and stuff. And then when I realized all the hard damn work that went into it and the excruciating pain, et cetera, I was like, mm, not so much. But my parents cracked the whip and they were like, we've spent money on these lessons. You're going to damn well do them. And so what was my saving grace is I had weak ankles. And so... <laughs> Uh, when I went on points, it just all fell to shit. And it was just like, okay, this is not going to work. I'm not going to be a ballet dancer. And reading this book kind of like I had some PTSD reading this because I was taken back to this ballet teacher of mine that I still have nightmares about. And, you know, you said you're not really a dancer. So how did you bring this world alive so, so vividly? Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad you said it's so funny. I've been hearing the last week or so since the book came out from so many people about their dance teachers. <laughs> I've heard so many stories, like, I mean, some dark, some, some light, but all a little, a little frightening. <laughs> they are, so, they scary people. I'm yeah, telling you, carry on. That authority. I mean, you're very young too. And, you know, in some ways they're, um, it used to be that they would, you know, they don't do this so much anymore, but they're physically manhandling you sometimes. And it's, mm. it's very intimate, but it, you know, all those details, I really did want to get it all right. And, you know, it's really in some ways intimidated at first. And, you know, will I be able to understand this enough and to describe it enough to just, you know, it's sort of like dancing about architecture, writing about dance is, you know, is tricky, but I really just tried to read every memo ballet memoir and, and every sort of all the nonfiction books about the history of New York City Ballet or um, the Nutcracker and um, watched all the documentaries and movies and just sort of endless hours on YouTube watching rehearsals. We know we could get the inside view of things and just sort of kept going until until I could sit at the computer for a solid stretch and not have to look anything up where I could sort of knew what the smells of the studio were, knew what it would feel like to sort of press your, your slipper against that floor you know was really trying to get enough that that I could make it come alive and then I could, could check the rest later yeah and you know as writers we're always told write what you know and I think that's not good advice and that's something that you perfectly showed you is that you don't have to know something you know you can yeah. research something and and that's our job as writers in the same way that actors make a character come alive in a, you know, a life that an actor would never have lived themselves. We as writers bring so many other things to life that we have never lived. And we can do that through research, through observation, through paying attention. Yes. I've always heard that the uh, amending that to write what you're curious about, what you want to go, you know, write about what you want to explore. And I think that's a better way. And you, we want to have the interest and the curiosity and the hunger there, but that, yeah, that part, part of writing is that research, however you define research. I mean, this isn't always reading books and, you know, sometimes it is sort of going and talking to people or whatever the, the world that you want to uh, bring to life. But I think that that is part of writing writing and and is maybe undervalued whenever it's so much about word count how many you know words did you write today but I think that stuff is is in some ways more important definitely and were you writing this during COVID because if so you couldn't just you know contact ballet studios or whatever and say can I come and watch you know which you <laughs> otherwise might have done yeah no I I, I finished it Right at the beginning of lockdown. So the first month of lockdown, I said, it was, it was, it was really what enabled me to finish it probably. Um, but it was sort of 
while to sort of still doing revisions and so forth during that stages in the late spring of our our year of COVID. And um, and it was when a lot of dancers were having class and even performances outside. And there's something so joyous about it um, mm-hmm. and dancing on grass and dancing on in city plazas. And, and there'd be these wonderful videos too of dancers dancing on their kitchen island or, you know, all dancing from their privacy of their homes and then sort of being cut together to sort of create. So it was something so lovely about that their desire to dance was so great and and certainly my desire to see dance was so so vivid and real that maybe we didn't need all these other things that just they could just go outside and dance for us it's kind of wonderful yeah and you know something that emerging writers especially struggle with is describing movement describing a gesture a hand and things like that you know they tend to kind of just view bodies as getting a character from one room to the next and and that's kind of it. Whereas when you write about something like this, you know, you have to make the body come fully alive. Every gesture means something. A hand that's turned out wrong needs to be corrected. The posture, all of that. So for our listeners, if you struggle with writing about body language, if you struggle writing about movement and things like that, and your characters tend to just be these two talking heads, I would strongly recommend that you read the turnout and really see what Megan has done in terms of describing movement. It it really, really is amazing. Now, in terms of the book's point of view, uh, we begin with this first chapter that feels like this very omniscient, almost godlike third person as it looks at the Durant School of Dance and the Durant family. Uh, It's almost like this high angle establishing shot. But then after that, it zooms in closer to Dara's point of view. And we realize that Dara is going to be the point of view character of the sisters. So even though there's two of them, we're sticking uh, pretty close to to Dara. Is there a reason why you you did that as opposed to just doing her in in the first person? No, it's uh, it's so funny. Just as you say that, I'm realizing, oh, that is what I did. (laughs) So much of this is unconscious, but I guess what I did know at the beginning is that I wanted the 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 lore, um, lore L O R E, you know, of the family. I wanted to sort of set that up. So I wanted to have this kind of authority of a, that. This is what they look like to the outside, and then we're going to go inside. Um, and that there was this, you know, even the first page, there's a sort of disconnect between the way that Durants are viewed in the community and among their students and the parents and, and how it really is for the Durants, that, that there's this sort of mythos about, for instance, their parents who, you know, their, their glamorous mother who started the ballet school and, and that and that may or may or may not be the whole story, but there would be this tension from the start between the, the public and the private version of the Duran. But then yes, then we'd be with Dara the rest of the time and with her inside view, but also her limitations because of the things she can't see or won't see or wants to hide from. Yeah, I think the things she doesn't want to see are so much more interesting than than anything else, you know. And this is something else. Emerging writers tend to just kind of put it all on the page. I call it like a emotional or intellectual vomit. It's just kind of, <laughs> yes. I'm gonna tell the reader everything in the first few 
few pages. And again, this is a masterclass in withholding information, in kind of alluding to something and letting the reader have to do the heavy lifting in trying to figure out, you know, what is being alluded to. Is this real? Is it rumor? Is it conjecture? Are they imagining things? So as readers, we're constantly second guessing ourselves through throughout this book, which is part of its, you know, the atmosphere of the book, which is amazing. So in terms of the unreliable narrator element to it. So on the page, you know, we know that Dara describes Derek as being disgusting. She has this very visceral, strong reaction to him. You know, for her, he represents everything that's chaotic. Um, and so she sees him as repulsive in every way. But then we see the other sister, Marie, who has such a super strong attraction to him. And could you talk about writing a character like this, where the reader has to do the heavy lifting in terms of figuring out, is he as disgusting as Dara says he is? Or is that just, you know, her view of him? Yeah, I, I really wanted it to, I wanted it just to have that feeling where you you sort of, re, you're going, because we tend to go along with the character's point of view, you know, whatever they're saying, we tend to believe is the, is the view. And and so I really wanted to sort of play with that and, and have you sort of, you know, as you're sort of moving around, moving around these characters and looking at them from different angles and how differently they can, because that's, you know, we're all really complicated and we all sort of carry all these contradictions and it you know and what these sort of characters just sort of show that and so sort of keep seeing them from different vantage points and with different ideas you know Dar has very strong ideas about you know who who Marie should should have in her life and all that so that it would be steeped in that and you wouldn't even really realize that Dara had convinced you of that until Marie says something that, that makes you sort of wait wait a minute wait a minute so yeah just I suppose it's for me it's like that was always what I loved about books even as a kid is where I feel like I'm in this little little conversation with the with the book you know the book is whispering in my ear and I'm saying but wait what about that and then the book says that you know it's sort of like a it, it, keep, it keeps me it's sort of this very active reader narrator dynamic it's always what I'm hoping for yeah you can't zone out in this book man you you make us work for it which I which I absolutely love because you know in the same way that Derek is kind of gaslighting these women and everyone that he deals with the reader sometimes feels like they they being gaslit you know yeah. it's it's like can we trust what we're being told you know and then when we made we will reach certain conclusions and we'll be like ah we've reached this conclusion but then a little bit later we made to kind of feel like we dirty minded or there's something <laughs> wrong with us because we've reached that conclusion and then later on we're like aha I was right you know so it's yeah. it's it's wonderful to keep second guessing yourself like that as a reader because it's a very very active way of reading which is not true of of all books you've said in interviews I can only really conceive of a story if it's around a crime because that's what gives you your plot engine can you tell us what you mean by your plot engine yeah I mean I, it, it really sort of the inevitabilities of crime and consequences for crime sort of create a pressure cooker for you by their very nature. Certain things are going to happen. If this person dies through violence, then the police are going to come. These sort of certain things are going to happen and sort of gives you this really solid framework that we all understand. So then you can be really messy and wild with everything else because you've got that. So it, it, that's solid and, and the reader will go with you because they know how these things 
work. And it just feels like what it does is just open up the open up space to really, you know, let all the all your obsessions and fascinations and stuff come forward because the plot is strong and solid and has a place it's going and um and you you know you have a place to take the reader that they're gonna want to go. So that's how it is for me. I think it's one of the beauties of genre. And so I and also I mean when it's a crime, I really I'm interested in people sort of at the at their hardest moments or their darkest moments. It's sort of when you show who you really are. So I think that aspect of it, what it illuminates about people is really compelling and, and their resilience too. Yeah, absolutely. Adversity reveals character yes. and you, you show that very, very well. And and just on what you've said, you know, that I feel like that sets up such a strong structure for the story, which then allows you to experiment with characterization and themes and so many other things as well. So that, you know, you can play with that, but the story still has this super strong structure. Last question. Uh, this book takes place sort of more or less in the modern day from what I was able to piece together. And as emerging writers, they always told, you know, date and timestamp things, tell us exactly when it's happening, where it's happening, uh, which you didn't do with this at all. You kind of left it open to interpretation. And you've said you like to avoid things like texting and social media use. Could you tell us why you did that and specifically why it worked so well in this particular story? Yeah, and it, of course, wouldn't work for every story or every writer. But I, I think for this case, you know, there is a sort of fairy tale quality, you know, partially because of Nutcracker and Ballet. But I, I really wanted to sort of have that in every way so that it wouldn't have a Every, the reader could fill in where it's taking place. And in some ways it exists out of time, like ballet does. And, and you know, in these, in places like ballet, they are places where, you know, no phones allowed. And uh, so it sort of makes it even more timeless. So I really wanted to lean into that so that it would have that kind of fairy tale quality. I mean, that's why, that's why fairy tales are, have lasted, last, right? Because they're kind of eternal. Um, and so I wanted it to sort of mimic that. I said, I do it in a, in a lot of my books. So I, I think I am drawn to that. I don't want something to become, I guess, you know, aged, you know, aged or sort of time stamped the minute you finish it where everyone will know oh, that must have been 2016 or something. And I, yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather have it sort of live, live always when I can get away with it. Yeah, it was very timeless. And there were these kind of dreamscape qualities to so many of the, of the scenes, which worked amazingly. Well, Megan, we're at the end of our time. It's been absolutely fascinating chat with you. I could chat to you for hours. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and sharing your experience with, with our listeners. And uh, for our listeners, go out, get the turnout. It kept me turning pages late into the night. I absolutely loved it. Oh, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all-about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.